0: God uses his providence and his word to accomplish his will in the lives of his people. Ezra's name means Yahweh helps. How does he help? He helps by his word and by his providence.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled, An Aerial View of the Old Testament. We're looking at the Old Testament from a 30,000-foot view, examining nine major movements or changes throughout the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. Last time we began to look at the destruction of the nation of Israel in 587 BC, followed by their captivity in Babylon. Today we come to the final two movements in the Old Testament, found in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Israel's exile in Babylon, and the restoration of Israel. Friend open your Bible now, let's join Tom Pennington with today's message on the Word Unleashed.
0: To help us in our journey, I've divided the Old Testament into nine major movements or scenes, beginning with universal dealings in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the patriarchal period for the rest of Genesis, slavery in Egypt, Exodus 1, the Exodus under Moses from Exodus 2 through the end of the Pentateuch and Deuteronomy, and then comes the conquest and division of the land in the time of Joshua. The period of the judges ensues after that, with the books of Judges, Ruth, and the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel, followed by the monarchy, that time when there was a king in Israel who ruled over the land. First, the united monarchy in 1 Samuel 9 through 1 Kings 11, and then the divided monarchy when there were two kingdoms, really, with two different kings and dynasties that made up Israel. That's from 1 Kings 12 through the book of 2 Kings. Tonight we come to the last two movements our scenes in Old Testament history. The Babylonian exile, which is described for us in not too much detail in Ezekiel, Daniel, and certain Psalms, and what's called the restoration period, when some of the Israelites leave Babylon and return to the land of Canaan and resettle it. That is described in the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. We will... Go through each of those in its course tonight. We need to begin, however, with the eighth great movement, and that is the exile of Israel. Remember that in 722 BC, the northern ten tribes, the north as we've called it, was destroyed by the Assyrians. Although the south, the southern part, Judah, did not fall as soon as the north, it was destined to fall because of her ongoing sin of idolatry. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that Israel would spend 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah 25, 11, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it happened. Most of the people of the southern kingdom of Judah were carried off as captives to Babylon. But it happened in three stages, or three distinct deportations that you need to understand. Because when you read the Old Testament, it's hard to make sense of it if you don't understand that there were three different times when the people of Judah were carried off captive. There was the first deportation that occurred in 606-605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, attacked Jerusalem and put the city under siege. Word reached him of his father's death, so he had to return to Babylon and secure the throne, but he decided, as he left, to take with him a few of the best and the brightest Jewish young men to train them for leadership. Among those young men was a man named Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as their Hebrew names are. So God deports these young men, including Daniel, to Babylon. Why? Why? This was God's grace to his people. He was preparing the way for his people, even though he must send them into captivity, he paves the way. Because of Daniel, their captivity would not be nearly so hard or so difficult. By 586, when most of the people were carried off to Babylon, Daniel was already the second most powerful man in the empire. And so God, even in wrath, remembers mercy. Daniel became for Israel in Babylon what Joseph had been for Israel in Egypt. That's the first deportation. A few years later, in 597, so 606, 605, first deportation. Second deportation, 597 BC, Judah refused to pay its annual tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what possessed Exactly, the leadership to come to that decision but they did so Nebuchadnezzar returned to punish the city he took some 10,000 captives of the most skilled and powerful and influential including a man named Ezekiel very influential man who would while in Babylon be called to be a prophet of God and we of course have a book in our scriptures written by this man that was the second deportation. So the first, just a few young men. The second, 10,000 captives of the most skilled, the most powerful, the most influential. The third deportation comes about 10 years later, 11 years later, in 586 B.C. Once again, Judah refused to pay its annual tribute. And so Nebuchadnezzar's army returns. They destroyed the city entirely, and they destroyed the temple. And Nebuchadnezzar carried off to Babylon the majority of the population. He left there only the poorest and the most infirmed so that the land wouldn't be entirely overrun. At this point, at 586, Israel's independence as a nation ended and the times of the Gentiles began. Time that really continues to this day. Although Israel, of course, as of 1948 is in her land, she still dominated in so many ways. Now, during this period of the deportations, between the second and third deportations, between 597 and 586, one of the most tragic events in Israel's history occurs. You remember back in Exodus chapter 40 that Moses completed the tabernacle, and the glory cloud, that visible manifestation, that blazing cloud manifesting the glory of God, took up residence in that tent. The Holy of Holies became the throne room, as it were, of Yahweh, Israel's king. And from that time forward, the glory cloud always resided in the tabernacle, and then later... When Solomon built his temple in 1 Kings 8, the glory cloud takes up residence there as well. But in 592, the glory cloud departed from the temple and even from the city of Jerusalem. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Notice what Ezekiel sees and describes to the people. Ezekiel chapter 10. Remember now that glory cloud hovered over the Holy of Holies as a visible demonstration of the presence of God, Israel's king, among her people, among his people. Notice verse 3. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side. This is a vision that Ezekiel was allowed to see by God. The cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple of the temple and the temple was filled with cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord look down in verse 18 then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim when the cherubim departed they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them that chariot image that that Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 1, that sort of war chariot of God, as it were, the war throne of God, he sees here. And verse 17 says, When they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they rose up from the earth in my sight. They stood still, middle of verse 19, at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Then turn over to chapter 11, verse 22. So left that mercy seat there over the cherubim, went to the threshold of the temple. Verse 22 of chapter 11, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of the city. And God, in his visible manifestation as king of Israel, departs. The glory really is gone. And it's just a matter of time until God commands Babylon to come in under Nebuchadnezzar and raise it to the ground tragic demonstration of what god did with his people why did god allow his people to be carried off into captivity really it's because of his faithfulness because of his loyalty because he made a covenant with them at sinai you remember what he told them Deuteronomy 11, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, the blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. And what was the worst, the greatest curse of all? It was captivity in a foreign land, described in Deuteronomy 30. So the worst has come, God is merely keeping his word in the covenant that he and his people entered into at the foot of Sinai. Seventy years of captivity. Most of the details of these 70 years are unrecorded in the narrative of Old Testament history, but we get small glimpses from Daniel 1 to 6. We can kind of see a little bit of what happened with God's people there in Babylon. We see a little more in Ezekiel as he lived there in Babylon and wrote his prophecy from there and certain Psalms including Psalm 137 where they are asked to play but they can't play and sing the songs of Zion by the rivers of Babylon. Those are the glimpses we get. During the period of the exile, those 70 years, there were two prophets who ministered to God's people in Babylon. I've already mentioned them both, Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel's message And what we enjoy from his book is this, God is sovereign over all of human history, every king, every empire, and what a comfort that would have been to these people sitting under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, you name it, there is no leader out from under God's control. That's what God wanted his people to know. And the message of Ezekiel was one of condemnation for their sins, but consolation that God loved them and even a message of restoration, the hope of restoration. And God's people suffered in Babylon for 70 years. But then came the great Persian ruler, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus's Medo-Persian empire stretched all the way from the Aegean Sea to India. And on October 12th, 539 BC, an army under Cyrus conquered the great city of Babylon, and the Babylonian empire fell. You can read about it from a biblical perspective in Daniel 5. It's one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Xenophon, the historian, describes how the Persians penetrated Babylon's defenses. Babylon was an unconquerable city. That's why they were having a party that night. It was an annual festival. they Belshazzar's feast. It was an annual festival that they held. But he decided to hold it, in spite of the fact the city was under siege, in a sense to thumb his nose at the armies outside, to say, you can't touch us. We are in Babylon the Great. So how did the Medo-Persians do it? Xenophon tells us that they deliberately chose the night of the annual feast, knowing that the people would all be drunk and distracted. Then upstream, sometime before the feast, they had dug a canal and... At the proper time, they diverted the Euphrates River, that part of which fl- flowed under the walls of the city to provide a perpetual water supply. They diverted that, and immediately the water level dropped, and the Medes and the Persians waded in under the walls where the river normally ran. Amazingly, once they got inside the city, they found that the brass gates that led into the inner city were open. What I love about this is 150 years before the events of that fateful night, Isaiah the prophet had predicted it would happen. And he even addressed his explanation to Cyrus by name, even though Cyrus would not be born for 100 years and would not accomplish this event for 150 years. Turn to Isaiah. I have to have you read this. Isaiah chapter 44. Now remember... This is written a 100 years before this man's birth and 150 years before the events themselves occur. Isaiah 44, verse 28. It is I, God says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will perform all my desire and he declares of Jerusalem she will be built and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have given, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I go before you, God says, and make the rough places smooth. He says to Cyrus, I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You know what I love about that? God demonstrates his power by crushing an empire with a man he calls by name 150 years before, and he even describes how it will happen, severing the gates of bronze, just as Xenophon tells us the Medes and Persians found the city. In God's providence, Cyrus and the Persians conquer Babylon, and here's the amazing thing. Cyrus and the Persians have an entirely different approach from the Babylonians. They believed not in keeping people captive away from their homeland, but in repatriating the peoples who had been conquered. So in 538, just a year after he conquered the city of Babylon, Cyrus issued a, a decree that allowed the Jews to return to their land. And the 70 years of Babylonian captivity came to an abrupt end, just as God had said, at the very year that he had said. There's some disagreement about how to calculate the 70 years. There are two options. Both of them work. Some say you should calculate from 606 BC, the first deportation, to 536 when the second temple foundation was laid, when they started building the temple again. Others say, no, it should be calculated from 586 when the city was really demolished and destroyed, the final deportation, and it ends in 516 when the temple is completed. That's when the captivity ends. Regardless, the point is God did just as he said, 70 years and no more, and he did it through the crushing of an entire empire. That brings us to the final movement of Old Testament history, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Israel to her land. This final phase of Old Testament history is recorded in two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. We think of them as two books, but actually they were considered to be one book by Josephus, by the Talmud, by the Septuagint, by the Hebrew scribes. In fact, it was origin in about 200 A.D., that was the first to separate Ezra and Nehemiah into two books. So really, it's one book describing the, the restoration. Ezra actually, in chapters 1 through 6 of his book, wrote history because it was before his lifetime, the events of chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 7 through 10 of his book, he is an eyewitness to, and he writes basically from his memoirs. Nehemiah, the entire book, are the personal memoirs of Nehemiah, so it is contemporaneous history. Together, they give us a narrative of the restoration of God's people from the 70 years of Babylonian captivity to their own land. The restoration, like the exile, also occurred in three phases or three distinct returns, In the first column, you have the first return to the land. In the second, under Zerubbabel, in the second column, you have the interval between the first return and the second return. And you see that there's 58 years, and that's when the events of Esther occur. Under the second return, you have Ezra bringing people back, and the worship is restored. About 2,000 people come back with Ezra. 50,000 came back under Zerubbabel in the first return. Then you have an interval about 13 years between the second and the third returns, and the third return is under Nehemiah, and, of course, Jerusalem is fortified. Into the first return, the temple is rebuilt. Under the second return, worship is restored to the people of God, and the third return, Jerusalem, the city itself, is fortified. You'll notice also the books of the Bible that tie into these returns. Notice that Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets, write, connected to the first return, and we'll talk about them in a moment. You have Esther between the first and second returns, and then the third return under Nehemiah, Malachi's ministry, ties in with that and relates to that return. So that just gives you a little idea. Here's another way to look at it. Same concept, different idea. Start at the top and read down. You'll notice in the middle column there are years, And so you kind of get an idea of the relationship of everything to each other. You see Zerubbabel returns with 50,000 people and rebuilds the temple in the first six chapters of Ezra. Then there's a gap. You'll notice down here a gap of 58 years. And I've reproduced that on this next chart just so you can see where we are. There's that same gap during which the events of Esther occur of 58 years. Then you have Ezra's return another gap, and then Nehemiah's return to rebuild the wall. So that gives you a little idea of how that flows. Now when you come to the book of Ezra, the writings of Ezra the scribe, and you begin to look at his, at his book, he looks rather like a historian of sorts. He has a number of official lists. He has seven official letters actually transcribed and written out, and you have what amounts to his own official memoirs in chapter 7 through 10. So it could feel a bit like a history, but it's not. Ezra is not solely a historian. The book of Ezra Nehemiah, remember we think of them as one, the book of Ezra Nehemiah spans 108 years. It only touches on 28 of those years and ignores 80 of those years. Why? Because. Ezra and Nehemiah both selected specific things to communicate a central purpose. There are in these two books, or in this one book if you think of it that way, two very real recurring concepts or supporting themes. One of them has to do with the hand of God in providence. The other has to do with the word of God you see this in a number of ways when you look at how you have this recurring concept of the hand of god in ezra 1 1 god stirred up cyrus in verse 5 whose spirit god stirred up chapter 6 verse 22 god turned the heart of the king chapter 7 verse 6 the hand of god 7 9 the good hand of god god verse chapter 7 verse 27 put such a thing in the king's heart Chapter 8, verse 18, the good hand of God. You see that recurring theme. God is working behind the scenes in providence to accomplish his purpose for his people. The same thing occurs in Nehemiah. You see those those same concepts in Nehemiah 2.8 and verse 12, Nehemiah 4.15, and and then in 2.18. I put that one last because here's how Nehemiah describes what happened to him. He says the hand of God has been favorable to us. So you see this recurring theme of God's hand involved in pulling the strings and directing the circumstances of his people. Keep that in mind, that's important. The second recurring theme is this constant appeal to the word of God, unlike before the captivity. Remember what was going on before the captivity? People were ignoring the Bible. They found a copy once buried in the wall and it was a shock to them all. But when you come to Ezra Nehemiah, you see a different occurrence. In Ezra chapter 1-1, all these things happen to fulfill the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. It is written. It is written is a theme that occurs over and over again in Ezra's book. The people even order their praise in chapter 3 verse 11 after what Jeremiah had prophesied.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his current series titled An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will bring you part 10 on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. and We do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at one eight seven seven five seven seven word And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed.